I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome to the Friday Golf Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. And today, for the third installment of our Great Courses series, we're discussing the old course at Sunningdale Golf Club, which is about an hour southwest of London, England. It was designed by Willie Park Jr., and it opened in 1901, after which it was extensively revised by Harry Colt. And according to my guest today, It might be the most important course in the history of modern golf architecture. That guest is Adam Lawrence. Adam is the editor of Golf Course Architecture magazine and the author of an upcoming biography of Harry Colt. For this episode, I've decided to do a somewhat extended introduction because I just have some thoughts on Sunningdale and its era and this general subject in golf architecture that I've been wanting to sort through and get out there. So that's coming up along with my interview with Adam Lawrence. But first, a quick word from our sponsor for this episode, Club Champion. Club Champion helps golfers of any skill level play better golf through custom-fitted and custom-built equipment. Their extensively trained master fitters provide an in-depth, data-driven, tour-level fitting process and have access to 50,000 hittable head and shaft combos, as well as 60-plus brands. So this is a truly brand agnostic fitting. That's one of the great things about it. The fitters don't really have any motive to promote one brand or another. They just go with what works best for you. Club Champions fittings produce real results for every level of player, including an average of 22-yard increases off the tee and an average of 10-yard improvements in dispersion. You know, I think one of the myths out there about fittings is that they're just suited to high-level players, to scratch golfers and professionals. But really, I'm an example of an average golfer who has been helped a lot by a club champion fitting. Just figuring out what kind of equipment I should be playing, what what kinds of shafts and heads really enhance my swing rather than fight against it was one of the big revelations of my fitting there. And so it it gave me a basis from which to figure out my whole equipment setup. You know, in addition to just finding good stuff from Club Champion itself, it gave me a new mindset about what I should be playing. So for Fried Egg listeners, the deal that Club Champion is offering is this. Right now, you can use the code FRIEDEGG to get 50% off the cost of your fitting with the purchase of a club. So go to clubchampion.com and book your fitting today. Again, that's code FRIEDEGG, all one word. All right, so let's talk a little bit about Sunningdale and why I think it's such an important course and why I find its whole time in golf architecture, that first decade of the 20th century, to be so interesting. Um, so if, if you can picture this, I, I just got home from visiting family for Christmas and uh, it's the uh, 26th right now and I've, I'm starting to record this and I have my notes in front of me. You might hear some uh, rustling of paper because I actually wrote them on the plane flight back here. I, I decided to 
to do this introduction uh, pretty recently. And so it's going to be a little rough and ready, but um, I think I basically have the idea of what I want to talk about. So, you know, Sunningdale is probably the least known of the courses that we're going to cover in this series on great courses. And I think the main reason for that is that it hasn't really hosted a notable televised tournament for a long time. And, and so people just aren't familiar with what it looks like, how it plays. Um, another reason uh, for its relative obscurity is that it's just more private than most courses in the UK. Now, in the UK, compared to a lot of private courses in the US, Sunningdale is fairly easy to get on. And I think that most people could figure it out if they if they really decided to take a trip to this area. But, you know, compared to the old course, for instance, or, or most Lynx courses in Scotland, as well as Ireland and England, uh, Sunningdale is just a bit more private. So uh, if you don't have a clear idea of what Sunningdale looks like, then I would highly recommend going and finding the uh, Shell's Wonderful World of Golf episode that features Greg Norman and Nick Faldo playing Sunningdale in, it's like the mid to late 90s. It's an incredible episode. They got a, a beautiful day of weather and, and the course really looks pretty awesome. So I'd, I'd recommend that. It's I believe it's on YouTube, so it should be pretty easy to find. In any case, since Sunningdale is less famous than most of the courses that we're going to cover in this series, I wanted to talk a little bit about why I chose it and why I consider it so important to the history of golf architecture. Sunningdale really stands at the beginning of a new wave in golf architecture. And this new wave redefined what an inland golf course looked like. And it also really set the mold for what just modern golf courses looked like, period. We are, are very much still living in a world that this design at Sunningdale helped to create. So what was different about Sunningdale? One big factor I want to focus on is just the cost of building it. Simply put, Sunningdale had a much bigger construction budget than any previous course. Um, that these numbers are that I'm about to cite are based on research from Michael Morrison. Michael has been on the podcast before and, and written about the what he calls the great English golf boom. Sunningdale took 18 months to build. At one point, Willie Park had 70 men, 30 horses, and 10 plows working on the course. In total, it cost about 4,000 pounds to prepare the course, and then the clubhouse cost an additional 8,000. Now, these numbers might not sound all that big now, but to put it in context, you have to know something about how golf courses were built before Sunningdale. For starters, they weren't really built in the way that we would understand that word now. I think the more appropriate words would be designed or laid out. This is true of both the seaside courses and the inland courses that existed in Great Britain and Ireland in the 1800s. And it isn't to say that these courses were poor or unsophisticated. Many of them were anything but. But compared to Sunningdale and most of the well-known modern inland courses that were built after Sunningdale, 19th century courses were designed on an absolute shoestring budget, you know, nowhere near 4,000 pounds. Like it just didn't get even close to that. Lynx courses 
because of this, had a couple of key advantages over inland courses. One, they were set on land that was very well suited to the game. In fact, Link's Land is what inspired the game in the first place. So it's kind of even funny to say that that Link's Land was well suited to golf because it's really more like golf was in the first place suited to Link's Land. So obviously, creating a golf course on Link's Land didn't require nearly as much investment or intervention from the hand of man. The second advantage that Link's courses had, I would say, aside from the land, was that many of them had just been around for a long time. And so they had had a chance to be refined and tuned by, you know, sort of gradual improvements over time. And the old course at St. Andrews is the perfect example of this. We talked about it in the episode that I did with Scott McPherson. You know, that that course evolved over a, a, a huge amount of time, and it just kind of got better and better over the course of the 1800s. So it's not that Lynx courses were better funded or designed with a different and more advanced philosophy than inland courses. It's more that they were on better land and had been there for longer. All right. So now you look at inland courses from the 1800s, what they were like before Sunningdale, before the turn of the 20th century. Most of them were in England, first of all, and most of them were built in the midst of an incredible craze for golf in the 1880s and 1890s. England went absolutely nuts for golf during this time, and English people found themselves very undersupplied with courses near population centers. So to meet this new demand, courses were constructed very quickly on whatever land was available, and, and they were created cheaply because golf was a brand new pastime for, for many people in many places. And for all people knew, it could just be a passing fad. So they, they weren't necessarily going to spend a bunch of money, you know, right off the bat, that would have been too much of a risk. One of the leading architects of this period was Tom Dunn, um, who was a Scottish golf professional. His process was basically to visit a site for a day or two, give recommendations on where to cut the holes and maybe where to dig a few hazards. And then he would leave. Obviously, the courses that were built through this method were always going to have some issues, drainage issues, functionality issues, and generally they were going to lack the artistry that we've come to expect from modern golf course design. Now, because of all this, Tom Dunn became a bit of a boogeyman. Uh, to the next generation of golf architects. Alistair McKenzie mentioned him a couple of times. Other architects would, would write about Tom Dunn with a little bit of disdain. But if you look at him in the context of his period, you can't really blame him for what he did. He, he couldn't have had any concept that a golf course would eventually be expected to even have a significant construction budget or to take years to build. He, he was just responding to the opportunities and possibilities that the market contained at the time in the 1880s and 90s. Now, when money came into golf course development at the beginning of the 20th century, starting with Sunningdale, everything changed. Suddenly it became relevant to talk about not just laying out a golf course, but actually building 
a golf course. And suddenly golf course designers started to think of themselves as golf course architects, right? So, so with the possibility of building a golf course, building it, came the desire to think more deeply about the science and philosophy of creating golf courses. There started to be much more discussion of what constituted an excellent or ideal golf hole. And there was much more investigation of golf course agronomy. This is, this is really when modern ideas of greenkeeping started to be formed along with modern ideas and philosophies of golf course architecture. Now, it wasn't a coincidence that wealthier and more extensively, more formally educated people started to take an interest in golf course design around this time. The infusion of money into golf architecture had made the whole discipline a higher status pursuit and a form of art. The most influential voices in golf course design, therefore, were no longer those of working-class Scottish professionals. Instead, they were well-off and usually Oxford or Cambridge-educated Englishmen like Harry Colt, John Lowe, and Bernard Darwin and their contemporaries. These men brought their tastes and reference points into golf architecture. One of these reference points you'll hear Adam Lawrence mention later in this episode, which is the arts and crafts movement in building architecture. Basically, this was a, a style that valued naturalism and a sense of place in building architecture. And indeed, that influence became very important in golf architecture in this new era, because you had people who were familiar with arts and crafts and, and familiar with the philosophy behind it suddenly applying these kinds of ideas to golf architecture. Now, of course, there is a downside to these developments. The greater amount of money that was suddenly in golf course development made some wonderful art possible, obviously. But it also caused a, a raising of standards and expectations that has resulted in golf becoming more expensive and less accessible. This was, it, it turned into an absolute spiral, right? And it, and it probably would have started without Sunningdale, but there's no doubt that Sunningdale was one of the very first courses, maybe the first, to explore that high end of financing a golf experience. And so when we say that Sunningdale is the first modern golf course, we mean that it was, you know, an unusually artistic and well-worked out and impressive inland course. And so it was modern architecturally, but it was also modern financially. And that has not always been a positive thing. And this is this is a complexity of being a golf architecture fan as well as somebody who likes affordable golf courses. You know, good golf architecture doesn't have to be expensive, but when you look at the history, you come away with a clear idea that the invention of modern golf architecture that really started with Sunningdale set the game on a path toward becoming more expensive. And you know, history is always complicated like this. We we can we can celebrate great achievements. You know, Sunningdale was a great achievement. National Golf Links, which we talked about in the last episode of this series, was an incredible achievement. But they also represented a new era of golf course design and golf consumption overall 
that has seen the game become unaffordable for many people, especially as compared to the 1800s when really most golf courses were just free to play, if you can imagine that. Um, all right. So that's basically what I wanted to say about this era. Those I'm still working out those thoughts, but I hope that you found them interesting. Um, and with that, we're going to toss it to me and Adam Lawrence talking a little more specifically about Sunningdale and about the people behind it. Let's get to that. All right, Adam Lawrence, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. So before getting into the Sunningdale project specifically, maybe we could just talk about the general area where Sunningdale was and where many of the great English golf courses ended up being south of London. What was this area like and and why was it opened up in this way for, for golf construction? So Surrey was a very rural county into the early middle part of the 19th century. If you look at the population stats for the town of Woking, for example, it was tiny, minuscule in the early 19th century. And then the railways came. And as London grew and the railways came, the city and the area around the city became less suitable in the eyes of affluent people for where they wanted to live and where they wanted to bring their families. They moved out. They became commuters. They became suburbanites. And that's how suburbia developed. Suburbia followed the railways. And it's not coincidental that so many of the golf courses in Surrey have railway lines very close to them because the guys used to go there by train. Sunninghill has a railway station three minutes walk away. Working is further away, but the railway goes straight past it. People took trains out there, and then they used to fight like hell to, from the station to the golf course. Surrey grew up in the second half of the 19th century as the railways got established, and golf followed that because the people who were moving to Surrey were affluent and they wanted leisure. And as they discovered golf, golf became popular. And it just so happened that some of the land that was available out in Surrey was sandy, heathery. Indeed, it's, it's, indeed, it's, it's the most amazing coincidence. Um, but absolutely, that, that is true. There was no great, oh my God, look at all this beautiful sand out here. We must build dozens of great golf courses. That never, ever happened. Um, or certainly not at that time. It was, there are people here. We need land. Here is land. And coincidentally, it was fantastic land for golf. It did take a little bit of investment to make the land golfable, though. And that's oh, one of the sure. funny things about it. Absolutely it was for sure. And, and that was part of the issue. The 100-pound golf courses were impossible as soon as you went on to um, those heath sites because there was no grass. It was all heather. It was all gorse. They had to be cleared. They had to be seeded. They had to be built in ways that previous golf courses never did because th and this is one of, the, one of the most fundamental changes. All the golf courses of the 19th century were formed using existing turf. And in, in many ways, on sites where the turf is good, naturally good, that's a brilliant thing because you end up with turf which is suited to your site. 
But in Sunningdale, for example, there was no turf. So it, it all had to be seeded. And, and Sunningdale, as far as I can tell, was the first golf course ever to be entirely seeded. And that's why it was so much more expensive than anything that came before it. Right. This was such an important moment in golf architecture because, you know, for the first time, golf courses were truly being built in the modern way that we understand golf courses to be built. And so, of course, it was a a huge advance. Not with the same equipment, but there were being the soil was being prepared. Seed was being sown. They were waiting for it to grow. They were cutting it. They were refining it, blah, blah, blah. And then they went to plant it. Yeah. And, you know, before that, golf courses were sometimes really amazing, obviously, if they were on excellent land, like seaside links land, you know, the, the, the land would determine the quality of the course. But if a cheap course is built inland on a site that's not particularly well suited to it, it's probably not going to be particularly good. And so that's, and that's, that's what we have to this day. Yeah. You know, if you have a site that has heavy soil, you're going to have to spend some money on it if you want to make it good golf. All right. Why don't we get into the Sunningdale project specifically? How did the uh, project get off the ground? So the, there were two brothers, and they were the Roberts brothers, and they built a house at Sunningdale. And there had been, according to... Um, there's a history of the Sunningdale Club called the Sunningdale Story. It was written in the late 50s by Guy Bennett, who was an ex-secretary of the club and was revised 10 or 12 years ago by John Churchill, who was a long-term member of the club and basically the club historian. But according to that, there were a few there had been a small attempt to play golf in the area, and there were a few holes on what is now the Sunningdale Ladies Course. And the Roberts built house close to Sunningdale Station, and they decided to build the golf course. And it was essentially a piece of land speculation. It wasn't the sort of master-planned golf estate that we know nowadays, but the, the land was owned, and still is owned, most of it, by St. John's College, Cambridge. And they, got, they acquired the rights to build on the land from St. John's. And they started trying to build some houses along with the golf. And obviously the area was growing, affluent people were moving there. It was a pretty good proposition. They hired Willie Park to build, but not only to design, but also to build the golf course. And the value of the contract was £3,800, which it would be way, way, way more than had ever been spent on a course at that point. They, they had a company called the Ridgemont Estate Company, which took large-scale leases from St. John's for land plots of land in the area on which they could build the houses. So, as I say, it was essentially a land speculation project. It just happened to be one of the greatest golf clubs in the world. And they raised far more money than had really ever been raised for a golf course project, as you say. I, what, what, what allowed them to do that? Because these were affluent people who could see a return, irrespective of the goal, they were able to bring significantly, massively larger sums of money to bear uh, on the project than had previously been the case. 
And, you know, money has always followed money. If you have money, you can raise more. And they could see a return, and so they, they were able to raise the money. Who was Willie Park Jr. at this point? He was already pretty damn well established. You know, he'd won the Open twice. He was a very go-getting fella. He was very entrepreneurial, and he clearly saw in Sunningdale a big opportunity. He built Huntico in Oxfordshire pretty much at the same time as Sunningdale, and he was essentially the owner of Huntercombe. And it was Huntercombe going bust in 1908 or whenever it was that basically destroyed Park financially. So he had a number of things going on. Suffice it to say that he had built a few golf courses, but certainly nothing on the scale and ambition of Sunningdale or uh, Huntercombe. Nobody had built anything on that scale. Well, not Park, not Dunn, not anybody. Yes. And he turned out to be the guy. Um, <laughs> I know, and, and he had written about golf architecture previously. I know he had written one of the very early sort of uh, chapters. There's a chapter in, in his book. Uh, I forget what the book is called, but there's a chapter in his book on the the art of laying out golf courses. And this was one of the first times that somebody had really written something like this that went into detail about golf architecture. But uh, certainly uh, to, to him, even to him, this was something quite new. Um, so what do we know about the construction process at Sunningdale, how that played out, who was involved, uh, that sort of thing? I've never seen an, uh, a good description of how many people were involved, but it was a big job. There is a very nice description in the Sunningdale story. There was a, there was a chap called Bert Chapman, who grew up in the Sunningdale area, and he worked for the club for 60 years. So this is from the Sunningdale story. There is, moreover, another servant of the club, Bert Chapman, who is still in service after more than 60 years. His story, told to me some years ago when I met him going down to the village, is as follows. I used to work for Greengrass in the village. Now, one day, one Saturday, I wanted to go to the cup final with a pan. The pal. I asked me boss and he said, you can't go. But I went. I turned up as usual on the Monday, but he packed me off, said he didn't want me anymore. One day I met a pal and he says to me, hello, Bertie, out of a job? Yes, says I, I got the sack. Look here, says he, they're making a golf course or something up on the common. There's the man who's making it. And he pointed to a man smoking a big cigar. It was Mr. Willie Park. I went up to him and said, excuse me, sir, I hear they're making a golf course or something up on the common. Any chance of a job for me? He said, go on up there and you'll see my foreman, Mr. McLean, and ask him. I went along and I see his old man. Are you Mr. McLean, says I. Yes, he says. Have you got a job for me on this golf course you're making? Can you dig? I can do anything, says I. Then carry on, says he. And next Tuesday, I shall have been here 50 years. Yeah, if they were hiring people who just walked in like that, right. it was a big job. So they, <laughs> they, they recruited local laborers to help and, and, sure. and all of that. Like, this is confirmation of that. It would all, it would all have been manual. Or, right. or the greens would all have been dug out and whatever dirt was moved was moved by hand. And just to put a finer point on this, uh, no golf project inland 
or anywhere really had required this degree of uh, manual labor effort. No, um, and so no, I'm, absolutely not. This was something something pretty special. So, you know, when Sunningdale opened, do you have a sense of what was different about it, or whether golfers noticed that there was something new happening with this golf course? So, John Lowe in his newspaper column in December 1901, and the course opened earlier in 1901, reported that founders' life membership shares in the club, which had sold originally for £100, were by that point, by that point six months after it opened, trading for 150 So, you know, it, it was clearly a hell of a success very quickly. In the same article, Lowe said they were talking about a second course. Now, that didn't happen for 20-odd years, but they were talking about it even then. Now, in the course's early days, Harry Colt, who is somebody that you know a great deal about, uh, probably more than anybody else, <laughs> Harry Colt crossed paths with Sunningdale Golf Club, uh, became involved. So can you tell me that story? How did he get involved in this project? Well, so Colt had played golf, he'd been captain at Cambridge University, and he continued when he he was he was from a family, his father was a lawyer, his brother was a, his older brother was a lawyer, and clearly law was the family business. So Colt studied law at Cambridge, it was pretty obvious that it was that he intended to be a lawyer. So he graduated, he became a lawyer, and he moved down to Hastings in the South Coast. Uh, and started practicing law. At the same time, the Rye Club opened, he joined that. He was involved, he was very fundamentally involved in not the creation of the original Rye course, actually, but the creation of the second Rye course, which was done almost immediately after it opened. And now over a period of about five years, this is 1893 and 94, so over a period of about five years, he played a lot of golf. He was made, he became a member of the RNA in the early 1890s. He traveled around playing golf a lot and he spent pretty much all his spare time playing golf. In 1898, the Oxford and Cambridge Golfing Society was founded, essentially by John Lowe, but not exclusively. And it seems to me that playing with the society made Colt realize. Golf people are much more fun than law people. And it seems to me that it's at that point that he decided, I'd like to spend my time in golf. People of Colt's class did not work in golf at the time. The only people who made a living from golf were people of lower classes. They were professional golfers, they were caddies, they were greenkeepers, blah, blah, blah. Middle class educated people did not work in golf. They played golf. Then they went to, the, to do, their, do their actual work during the week. At that time, the RNA decided for the first time to employ a paid secretary. This is 1899, 1900. Holt applied for the job and unsurprisingly was shortlisted, but he didn't get the job. And the, he, he, he assembled this. It's, astonishing package of testimonials when he applied for the RNA job. The most amazing one was from Arthur Balfour, who at the time 
was, I think his title was Chief Secretary of the Treasury, but he was essentially number two in the British government because the Prime Minister at the time was Lord Salisbury, who was in the House of Lords. So Balfour was the number one in the Commons, and he became Prime Minister a year or two later. And Balfour was a member of Rye, and he knew Colt very well. And so Balfour wrote, I have known Mr. Colt now for some years, and chiefly in connection with the Rye Golf Club. As honorary secretary of that institution, he has undoubtedly conferred immense services upon it. He has the great advantage of not only being an excellent man of business, but an admirable golfer. His personal popularity is a matter of common knowledge and is most thoroughly deserved. Horace Hutchinson wrote a testimonial for Colt. James Ogilvy Fairley, who is the son of the guy who created the Open, wrote a testimonial for Colt. He had this amazing sheaf of testimonials. And he didn't get the bloody job. <laughs> it, it astounds me, actually that Colt didn't get hired by the RNA at that time, but he didn't. But it, that had clearly made Colt think, I'd like to work in golf. And when the Sunningdale Club was formed, they advertised for a secretary, and he applied. There were 435 applications, and they shortlisted six, and Colt got the gig. And that was in July 1901. And so part of Colt's purview at Sunningdale was, you know, not only kind of serving as the as the club secretary as we would currently imagine it, but he also had some input on the golf course and and oversaw some changes to the golf course. Do we do we have a sense of what those were? Colt was essentially I don't like to use the phrase, but he was the dictator. He, he was clearly very popular with the members, and the members believed in him, and they let him do whatever he wanted. John Lowe said that Sunningdale was a wonderful course from the opening, but other people said other things about it. Um, Darwin was quite rude about a lot of the holes that were created in the opening. He said, in particular, the part three holes were very poor. And, and Colt rebuilt a lot of Sunningdale. This is Darwin in 1908. Many critics of golf courses, the writer, this writer among them, have always had three serious objections to the Sunningdale course as originally laid out. In the first place, its short holes seem poor. In the second place, the seventh and eleventh holes seem too blind and fluky. And in the third place, the last two holes, especially the 17, seem feeble. Then two years later, in the golf course of the British Isles, Darwin repeated some of his criticisms, but in general was much more positive. And that was because in those two years, Holt had done quite a lot. He rebuilt a substantial proportion of the golf course. And although the course remains in its routing and in its fundamentals, parks, but a lot of the detail is Colts. There are some very interesting individual things. So the 13th hole, which is now nice, but not especially exciting downhill part three. At the time, Darwin referred to it as one of the very worst holes in the world. It was a part three that was basically completely blind straight over a hill. Cole built it, built the downhill hole. Interestingly, he put a, a bunker, a pot bunker, right at the front and almost entirely surrounded by the green. 
and the bunker got the nickname of Colt Poe. Now, a Poe in, in coarse English English is a chamber pot, <laughs> a pot that you would keep under the bed to, right. go, to, the, to go to the bathroom in at night. So people may not have been a particular fan uh, of of that well, one bunker. I, I, I think it was it was significantly more popular than the previous hall. It was just a rude name. Uh, you know, you spent time with English English people, and you know that we take the Mickey out of things that we love. So Colts changes to Sunningdale. You know, he made a number of specific changes, redid some holes. I'd like to get a general sense of of how the course kind of looked different after Colt was done with it. My general sense, and I don't know if you can confirm this or, or not, is that the style of Park's architecture when it came to how the bunkers were shaped or even how the greens were contoured was a little bit different from what Colt ended up putting in at Sunningdale. Sunningdale by you know the end of the decade by the end of the first decade of the 20th century looks to me quite a bit like a hairy colt course when it comes to how the bunkers are shaped and all that so so what what was going on with that it's my opinion that park was very much a transitional golf architect he was very very important in the history of golf architecture but we have to realize that it was only from about 1898, 1899, that John Lowe, who was really the creator of the concept of strategic golf design, um, started to write about that subject. So in 1908, I haven't been able to trace the actual clippings, but there was clearly a series of articles in newspapers that said Holt was responsible for Sunningdale. And so Holt then sent Park a letter to which which he copied to the to the newspapers. So, dear sir, from a letter appearing in this week's issue of Golf Illustrated, it seems that a statement has been made in the press taking away from you the credits of laying out the Sunningdale golf course. I write to tell you that if this be so, it was done without my knowledge in any shape or form. The above-mentioned letter gives you every credit for laying out the course, which is your due without a shadow of a doubt. And if I may be allowed to say so, no one appreciates your work at Sunningdale more than myself, or nor the difficulty of forming the framework of a really good course. Please make any use you would like of this letter. Yours truly, H.S. Colt. Park got a lot right, but aesthetically, he was an 1890s designer. There are still, to this day, landforms on the old course at Sunningdale that when you walk around the course, you think, that looks strange, that's not natural. And what they are is mounds, things that were created, built by Park. The first hole had a essentially a mound built in front of it. You've heard about the steeplechase bunkers of the 1890s and what have you. It was something along those lines. Colt removed a lot of it and made it possible to hit a running shot onto the first green. Park's seventh hole at Sunningdale was a blind drive, which the hole still is, and a blind second shot. Colt left the drive as it was, but built a new green in a new location, which made the second shot visible. Obviously, he removed the blindness on the 13th hole. He did 
a lot of small things around Sunningdale that made it a more modern golf course. One of the things that I discovered while researching my Colt book was that Colt, by 1907, 1908, before he had ever started to practice as a golf course architect, had a strong reputation in the small golfing community of the day as one of the great experts on golf courses. And that's how his career started. His career started because of what he did at Sunningdale. And part of what he did at Sunningdale, you've alluded to, he built features that simply looked more natural than what Park yeah, totally. had originally built. And so there was a, a kind of new style of golf architecture entering the stage at Sunningdale. And so I, I want to spend a moment just talking about that new, more naturalistic style of inland architecture that, that Colt seemed to be at the forefront of. This is the thing. There are two things going on in golf architecture around the turn of the 20th century. There is strategy and there is naturalism, and they're not the same. And you can look at it this way and say, Park got strategy, but he didn't get naturalism. Or he didn't understand how to create things that were natural. And that really is the issue. You can build a strategic golf course, and it cannot be natural. You look at the C.B. McDonald golf courses in the States, you look at the Rainer courses, you look at quite a lot of similar golf courses in, in the UK. They're highly strategic, but they're completely unnatural. And so naturalism and strategy are not the same thing. They just happen to develop around the same time. And I would say Colt is an enormously influential person in bringing naturalism into architecture. Absolutely. And Colt wrote, wrote, you know, Colt wrote about that a lot. And he was always highly committed to making his work look as natural as possible. Um, now, the old course at Sunningdale, it's very interesting. We, 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 we said we wouldn't go too much onto the new course at Sunningdale. But if you compare the new and the old, the new is more naturalistic because it was done 20-something years later by an architect who had spent a lot of that 20 years learning how to build golf features that looked natural, whereas the old was built by a Scottish pro who had never, never really had to think about that before. Where do you think Colt's idea that golf features inland should look and feel natural came from? Was there like a philosophical source uh, for this for this notion that a golf course should even attempt to be natural in this way? There's a, there's a definite strand in Victorian thinking that starts with the Romantic movement. And you know, if you look at what happens in late Victorian England and Britain with the attitude to hill walking, for example, nobody went into the hills. In, in the early 19th century. And by the late 19th century, walking in the hills, climbing the hills, is all the rage. If you look at the development in buildings architecture and interior design and aesthetics generally of the arts and crafts movement in the last part of the 19th century, they are hugely into nationalism. And I think that is very influential in the way that Alt thought. 
there is no significant evidence that I have seen of people talking about natural golf courses pre-cold. But there's a lot of evidence of people talking about how important nature is. And I think that's the connection. Okay. So there were some different strands of thought kind of entering into golf at this point. You mentioned the arts and crafts movement, which uh, the um, the writer, the late writer Thomas McWood uh, has established was uh, was an influence on golf course design at the time, and, yes. and that's a very interesting set of articles. If you look at the key art, the, the key people in the arts and crafts movement, most importantly, William Morris. Morris was hugely influential on how middle-class Britain thought in the latter, latter years of the 19th century. And Colt was, Colt was a middle-class Englishman. There was, there was nothing great in Colt's family background. His father was a, a lawyer, uh, but a fairly anonymous lawyer. And then by the time that he, worked, he builds Swinley Forest in 1910, he's working hand-in-hand hand with some of the most high-profile men in England. So Holt is an example of how golf can make you upwardly mobile, socially speaking. At the same time, you, you have this sort of aspirational middle-class attitude to design in its broadest sense, which comes from Morris and the rest of the arts and crafts and the pre-Raphaelites. It, <laughs> Tom Woods' piece on arts and craft, the arts and crafts influence in golf is in my opinion, one of the most amazing things people have written, mm -hmm. anyone has written. It's very, very, very insightful. His general thrust, arguing the arts and crafts movement had a big influence on golf, is, in my opinion, absolutely spot on. Yeah, and people can read that piece on uh, Golf Club Atlas. Um, that's that's where that. Well, it's lives. actually several pieces. I, I believe. I think it's like four, four, I think it has like four or five substantial chapters. Right. My impression, I, I didn't know Tom, but my impression of Tom is that he didn't really know when to stop writing. <laughs> yeah, he produced he produced quite a bit, and it's uh, it's been really influential in the way a lot of people think about this time in golf architecture. Now, another factor that's different about Colt and his contemporaries, and when I talk about Colt's contemporaries, I'm talking about men like Hugh Allison, Alistair McKenzie, Herbert Fowler, Tom Simpson, Abercrombie, Croom, this whole kind of set of golf course designers who popped up in England at this time. One, they were English primarily, whereas most of the previous golf course designers had been Scottish. Even those designers who practiced primarily in England were Scottish pros. And second of all, many of the people in Colt's circle and who practiced golf architecture in a way that was influenced by Colt or similar to Colt, many of these men were middle class as opposed mm. to working class. And so that's that's also a difference, right? Absolutely. And and it's fundamentally about how golf developed. You know, you have to, there was no, you have to realize there was essentially no golf in England before the 1860s. Royal North Devon was founded, if I remember right, in 1864. Now it wasn't the first golf club in England, but it was, in a sense, the first English golf club because the London Scottish Club was obviously founded by expat Scots. Blackheath, which goes back a long, long, long way, was created by expat Scots. 
And golf only starts to spread in England from the 1860s and the 1870s. And it's a slow process in those early years. And Paul was born in 1869. And he was essentially the, one of the first generation of English people who was able to discover golf as a kid. When, it, when golf moved to England, it became a middle-class game in a way that it had not originally been in Scotland. That's changed somewhat over the, over the century and a half since then, but not completely. But golf became aspirational. Golf became, to an extent, a sign something that only fairly affluent people could play, certainly could only join clubs. And people like Colt got, did well off the back of that. Yeah, and, you know, part of this middle classification of golf or this turning of golf into more of an affluent person's sport was that the golf architecture changed. There was a little bit of a lag in that, but, you know, a place like Sunningdale with how much money they spent on it compared to previous golf courses certainly has to be considered part of that movement of the game into England. Absolutely. And it becomes even more obvious when you go forward from Swinley a few years and you see the creation of Swinley Forest. Swinley, Swinley was created fundamentally because people couldn't always get a game on a Saturday morning at Swinley because it was too damn popular. They wanted a course that was quieter. Rich people wanted a course that was quieter. And as that part of England grew, it naturally became more affluent. And if golf grows in that area, it is also going to be affluent. Golf in an area where land is becoming more expensive is going to become more expensive because it requires quite a lot of land. So then how would you describe the influence of Sunningdale on the future of golf architecture forward from that point and by extension, Colt's influence on where golf course design ended up going? Well, I, I've always felt that Sunningdale was the most important golf course in the world as far as golf architecture is concerned, because it's essentially the founding, the founding document of golf course architecture. Everything that existed before it was done, not higgledy-piggledy, but it certainly wasn't done in anything like such a systematic and thought-through way as Sunningdale was. It's important to understand just how small the world of golf was before 1914. In the First World War, everybody knew everybody. And, and that's true across the Atlantic as well. You know, there's a lot of crisscrossing between the American golf community and the British golf community. George Windler, who was president of the USGA in, I think, 1903, was an Englishman who moved to Boston and kept crossing the Atlantic on business. And there was a lot of cross-fertilization between the two. and Everybody knew everybody. And so if Sunningdale is regarded as the best, people are going to want their courses to be more like Sunningdale. If Colt is regarded as the person who was pretty fundamentally important in making Sunningdale the best, they're going to want Colt to help them make their course like more like Sunningdale. And it was Colt who built many of the courses in the Heathlands oh, as yeah, golf no expanded. Kidding. And and his protégés, right? And people who were influenced by him, who included Allison and Mackenzie and many others. Absolutely. 
And so, yeah, it's, it's something that, uh, it's kind of a hypothesis that I have that I haven't totally proven yet, but it's almost like Sunningdale set the mold for what a golf course looked like for what a modern golf course looked like. And yeah. we still are sort of under the influence of that idea. I, I agree. I think Sunningdale is the first modern golf course. You know, there's, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that's true. And that's not to discount the influence of Lynx golf courses or St. Andrews or no, 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 any no. of the Every, great courses. Everything that, everything that Colt and his followers and his friends and the people who were, were around him and doing the same sort of thing as him at the time, Everything they were doing was trying to bring the links and specifically the old course at St. Andrews. They were trying to create something that resembled that. Yeah, and that's something that we maybe didn't talk about enough uh, in the in the past, uh, you know, hour or so. Uh, that mm. a huge influence on the way that Colt thought about how a golf course should function and how it should look was, of course, his experience playing Lynx golf courses, especially the old course at St Andrews. Without a shadow, without a shadow of doubt. But it must be realized that Colt didn't grow up on the Lynx. His first experience of Lynx golf would have been at Cambridge. Um, now, admittedly, he only started playing golf a year or so before he went to Cambridge, but he grew up inland on early inland courses. The course at Cambridge, on which he played most of his university golf, was dreadful. <laughs> well, there not there a book that was written about it that's called The Worst yeah, Golf the Course worst in the World? Yeah, The Worst in the World. It's called <laughs> by, by my friend Michael Morrison. Yes. Yeah, um, that's right. Michael Morrison's been and, on the podcast. And, and I think well. Darwin, it was Darwin who, Darwin who christened it that. And you know, it, most, most early, early inland golf was pretty bad, but it was golf. You know, and, and, that, and that's the fundamental point. If all you have is bad courses, a bad course is better than no course, if you like golf. All right. Well, Adam, this has been really informative. Thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about no, Sunningdale. I, I had a hoot. I had, I had great, a great hoot. So thank you so much for having me, Gareth. Appreciate it. Yeah, take care. Good night. This episode of the Friday Golf Podcast was produced by Matt Ruchus. Thank you, Matt. If you've been enjoying the Great Courses series, then I think you would really like Club TFE. That's Friday Golf's membership. It's $120 a year, and you get all sorts of cool things with it, including exclusive content like course profiles and our weekly design notebook feature. Again, you know, if, if this episode was appealing to you, then I think a lot of this content that we're doing on Club TFE would be right up your alley. So go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and see what Club TFE is all about. All right, that's it. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back again soon. Mm-hmm.